0: So church, today uh, as we uh, begin to round the corner on this series that we've been in, uh, in the minor prophets, we're turning towards the home stretch. And and as we do so, we come uh, to the book of Haggai, which stands out among all of the uh, other minor prophets that we've considered up to this point uh, for its significant change in tone and in tenor. For whereas all nine of the, the minor prophets that we've looked at up to this point uh, were primarily messages that were, that were just overwhelmingly dominated by uh, words of warning regarding the coming judgment of God and all lined with just a, a little thread of hope in the midst of them, Haggai completely flips the script. It is a prophecy that is filled with, with hope and with great promises it contains only a small thread of correction. And even that correction is not a warning unto judgment. It is a warning unto uh, or not. It's, it's a correction unto life and to flourishing in all of its ways. And so on the whole, this is a deeply positive and hopeful prophecy. Therefore, as you as we come to God's word this morning, I want to I invite you all to exhale. Right? I mean, seriously, if you have been here for the last nine weeks, I want you to take a deep breath in and a deep breath out. Blowing away from your neighbor, obviously, because we're still in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, but today we can relax because we are not facing the rebuke of God. But instead, we are feeling his encouragement. And so if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it with me through the book of Haggai, if you can find it. As we consider the joyful and hopeful major message of this minor prophet. Now the book of Haggai is actually a series of five different prophecies that were given to God's people over a period of four months. And so in order to get to the major message of this minor prophet, we've got to first look at the many messages that he gives to us and then pull them all together. So so that's what we're going to do this morning in order to make sense of these many messages, we first need to understand the context in which they were given. Because it's a context uh, which makes Haggai's prophecy both hopeful to his original hearers and uniquely applicable to us today. The setting of this prophecy, we're told in in verse 1, is in the second year of Darius, the king of Persia. That places us in the year 520 B.C which is almost 70 years after God's people were taken into a captivity by the Babylonians Now, at this point in history, the Babylonians uh, had been conquered themselves uh, by the Persians. And the king of Persia was allowing the exiles who had previously been captured by the Babylonians... uh, The king of Persia was allowing them to begin to return to their homelands and to begin to rebuild uh, their nations and their cities. And so whereas all of the prophecies that we have considered up to this point uh, were prior to Israel's exile... They were preparing for and warning the people about the judgment of God that was about to come upon them because of their disobedience. Haggai is standing on the other side um, of that uh, discipline and is speaking to God's people who are coming out of exile and who are beginning their lives anew. This this group of God's people are standing on the other side of God's discipline and are looking forward to the restorative work that God is going to do in their midst. And so you can see how it would be a a hopeful time for God's people as the promise of of, of rebuilding and returning to their true home lay before them. You can also see how it's uniquely applicable to us in the church who stand on the finished side of Of the cross. We have seen God's judgment on our sin in the cross. And now we stand on the other side of that judgment, hopeful in the restoration that God has begun and in the future fullness of the promises that He has given to us. And so it's into that context in which these five messages are given. So let's look at them uh, briefly together. The first prophecy comes in chapter 1, verses 2 through 11. When the word of the Lord came to Haggai uh, for Zerubbabel the governor and Joshua the high priest. These were the civic and religious leaders of Israel at that time. And the message to them was this. The Lord said, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while the Lord's house lies in ruins? For You see, what had happened was that as as told in in Ezra chapters 1 through 6 is that when the remnant returned to Jerusalem from their exile in Babylon, they immediately began to work on rebuilding the temple, which had been destroyed 70 years earlier. But not long into that rebuilding project, they faced opposition from the surrounding neighbors, and they stopped working on the rebuild. Instead, they apparently began rebuilding their own homes, even to the point where they were living in the luxury of paneled houses. They had disregarded and delayed their work for the Lord in order to improve the quality of their own lives. And it's in response to this decision and to this rearranging of their priorities that the Lord holds before them a question. And he asks, how is it going for you? He says in verse 5 and following, consider your ways. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat But you never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages puts them in a bag with holes. God's point to them is this, that they will never be satisfied as long as they place their own priorities over his. He's reminding them that their self-centered pursuits will never satisfy the longing and the desires of their souls. As long as they're looking for comfort and safety and abundance and security in the things of this world and in the work of their own hands, they will never have it. In fact, God says that he will keep it away from them when they look for it in these places. In verse 9, he says, "You looked for much and behold it came to little. And when I brought you and when you brought it home, I blew it away." Why? Because my house lies in ruins. While each of you busies himself with his own house, therefore the heavens withheld dew and the earth withheld its produce. God is saying that he kept them unsatisfied. He caused their pursuits to come up empty. And that may sound mean or harsh, but it's not at all. In fact, it is so incredibly loving of God. Because God knows that ultimately we can never truly be satisfied in our selfish and self-centered pursuits. He will not let them be satisfied apart from Him because they cannot be satisfied apart from Him. He will not let them be content with less than Him because they cannot be content with less than Him. And so instead of letting them constantly pursue their own empty paths... God invites them, encourages them, and beckons them to go up into the hills and bring wood and to build His house in order that He may take pleasure in it and be glorified. Then the implication is that they will find their satisfaction and their joy. Then they will look for much and they will find it. This is similar to the whole whole philosophy of John Piper's ministry and the phrase made famous in his book Desiring God. That God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. See, I think the flip of that is true also. I think it's what God is saying here, that we are most satisfied in Him when He is most glorified in us. Our satisfaction is in God and Him Alone. When we focus on Him, we find what we're looking for. That's why Paul was able to say that I can be content in any situation because his pursuit was always Jesus. And so, whether he had much or whether he had little, he was always satisfied in God. That is the Lord's message to His people who, who had come out of exile and were learning to rebuild their lives as His people. He tells them. To begin with Him, seek first His kingdom, and all of these other things shall be added to them. Because He is the only place where they will be satisfied. They will only find what they are looking for in Him. And miraculously, as opposed to nearly all of the other prophetic messages that had come before them, this time the people listened. They obeyed the word of the Lord, and in response, they began rebuilding the temple again. This brings us to the second mini-message of this book. It's found in chapter 1, verse 13 and following, where we read that that as the people obeyed the voice of the Lord and, and showed up to work on the house of the Lord, God encouraged them, and He reminded them that He was with them. I am with you, declares the Lord. And this prophecy, this, this word of encouragement from God, but we are told that it, it, it did great good, that, that it stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, that it stirred up the spirit of Joshua, that it stirred up the, the spirit of all of the people. And that encouragement that God was with them as they built His temple, as they did His work, as they, they obeyed His word, it was a great encouragement. This, this is an image of the profound truth that we hear from the book of James. That when we draw near to God, He will draw near to us. As the people came to do the work of the Lord, God was with them in all of their endeavors. And whereas previously, but when they had faced opposition in the building of the temple, they, they gave up their work. This time, they persevered. God's presence with them gave them the strength and the encouragement that they needed. Now, as they rebuilt the temple, it rather quickly became apparent that their reconstruction project was going to be quite meager in comparison to the glory of the former temple which Solomon had built. The book of Ezra recounts how when some of the elders of Israel who had remembered the former temple saw the foundation of this new temple that was being built, it says that they wept. Not tears of joy over the work restarting, but tears of lament over the comparatively pitiful scale of this new building. The new temple paled in comparison to the old. It was smaller, less ornate, less adorned, smaller and lesser in every way, which caused many to be discouraged and to grieve at what they were witnessing. And this discouragement induced the third prophecy of Haggai, Which we find in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. It was read earlier um, in our service. Here the word of the Lord came to the people and asked, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Here God is acknowledging the reality of the, the smaller temple. And the reality of their disappointment with the way that things are. But then he speaks a profound word of encouragement to Zerubbabel, to Joshua, and to all of the people when he says, Yet even now be strong, work, for I am with you, my spirit remains with you. Fear not. For in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, so that the treasure of all of the nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory. And then he tells them that the latter glory of this house will be even greater than the former glory. God tells them that when He is done with this temple, it will be even more amazing, more beautiful, more glorious than the previous one was. In tender compassion and care for His people, in the midst of their discouragement, the Lord comes alongside to encourage them to stay strong, to keep up the work, and to remind them that His presence is still with them. And despite what things may appear that they should not be discouraged because he is going to do a work that they would not be able to believe. God is going to take this temple that looks so pitiful and insignificant and make it grand and glorious. This echoes Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of heaven when he reminds us that God's works often start small and seemingly insignificant, insignificant. But then they grow into something profound which cannot be ignored or overlooked or missed. It also echoes Paul's encouragement to the church in Corinth when he reminds them that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no no heart has imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. Here the Lord is encouraging His people that He would do a work and, and bring a glory to the temple and to the work of their hands that was beyond what they could possibly imagine. The fourth prophecy, which is found in the second half of chapter 2, was a, a word to encourage the people towards holiness and, and covenant living. God told the people that if they were unclean in their lives, then they would bring their uncleanness into the work of the temple. If they were living with injustice, then their, the, the, the building, the work, would end up being unjust. If, if they themselves were defiled, their ministry would be defiled. And, and he reminds them of how they've suffered for that reality in the past. But then he promises that when they live according to his covenant, that he would bless them. And then finally, the fifth prophecy comes at the very end of the book, in chapter 2, verses 20 to 30. And here God says to Zerubbabel, the leader of his people... That he's going to overthrow the kingdoms of the world, but that he was choosing Zerubbabel and would make him like a signet ring. And this imagery signifies a a couple of important truths for God's people. First, it reminds us uh, that they are, it reminds them, it reminds us that we are a chosen people, that, that we belong to God. And that whatever happens in the coming judgment of the world, that they are his and they will be safe and secure in him. Second, in regard to the imagery of the signet ring, this this speaks about the authority and the lasting nature of God's word. For a a signet ring was a a stone that was set into a ring and engraved with one's personal symbol on it. So the king's signet ring would have, have represented the king himself. It was used to endorse official documents by being pressed into soft clay or wax and then sealed or affixed to a document, guaranteeing that document was, was authentic and official. It, it signified that whatever was written or declared within a document that bore that seal was from the lips of the king himself. There was a kingly authority to it. And there was also a permanent nature to it. In the book of Esther, we read that no document that was written in the king's name and sealed with his ring could be revoked. And so this this final prophecy looks into the future. And it reminds God's people that regardless of what is to come, God's chosen one will speak with his authority and will stand and endure forever. These are the 5 many mini-messages of the prophecy of Haggai. And when you combine them all together, what we see is that God is encouraging his people Not to be distracted or discouraged in a day of small things. Because the Lord was with them. And he was at work in history to ensure that both he and his people with him would receive great glory. This is the major message of this minor prophet. And to those who had been enslaved in exile... And we're now beginning to rebuild their lives of faith and worship. This is a deeply encouraging and hopeful message. And it should be deeply encouraging and hopeful for us as well. Because, as I mentioned earlier, our situation today in the church is similar in many ways to theirs. We, like them, have come out of exile. Paul says that we've been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. We, like them, are living our lives on the other side of God's judgment for our sins. The judgment which we deserved for our sins has fallen on Christ. He was exiled to the cross and to the grave, and now in Him we have been given new life, new opportunity to be the presence of the people of God here on earth. We, like them, are at work building the temple of God. Not a physical structure with stones, but the church. Built with living stones, where God's spirit dwells within each and every believer. And we, like them, will face opposition and persecution from the world as we seek to do the work of God and as we participate with God in His kingdom building in this time and place. And in light of those similarities, this this prophecy has profound implications for us as well. First, it reminds us not to be distracted or dissuaded by the persecutions of others or by the opposition of our own flesh. As you seek to build or to, to rebuild your life of faith, there will be many things that stand in the way of that work. The opinion of others, the lusts of the flesh, the selfish and self-centered pride of the heart, these things can all easily divert or deter us from doing what we know God has called us to do, both in the church and in our own lives. And so if you if you stop giving to the work of the Lord because you want to save for something for yourself or or if you stop serving because you're too busy or if you stop stop attending and participating in worship or 242 groups because you're not getting anything out of them or if you make no time to spend with Jesus because the other priorities of your life leave no room for that or if you stop following his instructions for living a life of holiness because the ways of the world seem more enticing to you. Whatever it might be, these are all ways that we can get distracted and discouraged from doing what the Lord has called us to do. And when that happens, as to the Israelites, so to us, God asks in the midst of our diversions from him to consider How's that working out for you? Have you ever been more happy and satisfied when you're serving your own kingdom rather than serving Christ's kingdom? Have you ever been more content, more at peace, more joyful, seeking your own pursuits rather than seeking Christ's pursuits for your life? An honest answer to that question is no, you haven't been, because you can't be, at least not in the long run. If we build our lives around anything other than Him, we will never be satisfied. And the Lord wants to spare us of that. Second, this prophecy reminds us that in the midst of our service to the Lord, we should not be discouraged when things don't appear to be as significant or as successful as as we think they should be, or as we wish that they were. And this is a profound word for us, church, because we're a small church. It's easy to look at us and say, small church, small staff, small building, small resources. What good could this church possibly do? We're on a personal level. You may look at your own efforts to to love your neighbor or to do the work of evangelism, or to, or to be engaged in works of justice in the world, or simply to, 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 to be growing as a disciple of Christ, and end up feeling totally overwhelmed and discouraged by the, the size of the problems around you and within you, and the limited resources that you have to bring anything meaningful or significant to bear on them, what good could you really do? What do you possibly have to offer You know who has said things like that before you in the Bible? Moses, Gideon, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Elijah, the Apostle Paul. Every human being who has ever lived and sought to be used by God. We all feel that way at times. Many times we look at the state of our spiritual lives and we would rather cry over their pitiful state than rejoice. But it is directly in response to that voice of discouragement that the Lord says, Be strong. Don't be afraid. Keep working. Go for it because I am with you. I have chosen you. and My spirit remains in your midst. And he promises as the one who controls all of the resources of both heaven and earth, that He is going to make the glory of His latter temple greater than the glory of His former one. He is going to take what appears to be small and insignificant in our eyes and make it glorious. As magnificent as the original temple was, it is nothing in comparison to what God has done in the church through Christ. Jesus said in our gospel reading, destroy this temple and he would raise it in three days. And he did. The resurrection of his body, coming back to life from the grave. And Christ's presence in the church by his spirit is far more profound than his presence ever was in the temple. And as amazing as Christ's presence is in the church now, that is nothing in comparison to what it will be like when the fullness of the kingdom of God comes and when the dwelling place of with God is with man in its fullness, the latter glory will be far more than the former. And our job in the time that we are given is to keep faithfully working at the work of God until that day comes. Keep living with Him and for Him Participating with Christ in the redemption of all things until all things are redeemed. Because one day they will be. And God is going to use you in that process. Because He is a God who loves to take the foolish things in the world to shame the wise. He loves to take the weak things in the world to shame the strong. God loves to choose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. I mean, think about it. The God of the universe came in the form of a helpless child. The Savior of the world died upon a cross and was buried in a grave in order to bring life to the world. God loves to use the folly of what we preach in order to save those who believe. This is the way that God works. It's the way He's always worked. It's the way He will continue to work. And it is the way that He will work in and through you. He uses what is weak and small and insignificant to do great and glorious things. He uses weak things So that the glory can only be given and attributed to Him. Church, in the book of Haggai, we are given a message of incredible encouragement and hope. He reminds us that in this fallen and broken world, we should not be distracted or discouraged in a day of small things. But whatever it is that He has called us to and that He has given us to do, we should faithfully keep at it. Because the Lord is with us and he is at work to bring a glory to this world through the church that we cannot even imagine. So let's keep building together in the church and individually in our lives for God's glory and for our God. Amen.